0: Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name-Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 10 I went back to school in Greensboro to start my sophomore year much smarter than I was a year earlier. But my education had nothing to do with college courses. Anything retained was forgotten the minute I walked out of my final exam. I never wanted to further my education because I only wanted to make music. Still, being a college student had put me in a position to learn about the music industry so life made sense. After weeks of questioning my music-making methods, I had a breakthrough. I finally understood what Ski had told me. I went back into the lab on a mission and started working on music that was a bit more commercial than what I would have normally made if left to my own devices. I paid even more attention to what was on the radio and compared that to my music. I decided I would talk more about tangible things and less about how I would win any and every rap battle I was faced with. I thought about how in reality there were only so many imaginary rappers I could battle in my songs before people lost interest. In all fairness, how could listeners relate if they weren't rappers? The task was daunting, but I knew that Ski had a point. I trusted his opinion because he was a successful producer and I was an unsigned, wannabe rapper slash college student. The question was, what would I talk about? At the time it had become popular for rappers to talk about their money, how much of it they had, and what they bought with it, even if it was far-fetched. I was down to adjust my style for the sake of getting a record deal, but I had to keep it real like I was always taught. Plus after recording Insider's POV, I couldn't just start rapping like the other clowns I had all but called out by name. I knew I could incorporate a little bit of my fashion know-how into my songs, but I wasn't going to pretend like I had diamond-studded Rolexes, drove Ferraris, and wore Versace every day. I figured I'd rely on my confidence and apply that to all aspects of the ego-driven sport I was participating in. I liked clothes so my stance was, I have the best style. I knew I rapped well, so rather than take the role of the grassroots b-boy, I'd just rap with the self-assurance of someone who believed they were the best. I knew I was at least moderately attractive so I could also brag about how I did well with the ladies. All I had to do was embellish a bit and present it all in a crafty way that rhymed and BAM, I'd be a relevant rapper. For the next year I worked hard. At the time, artists like Busta Rhymes, Jay-Z, and Nas were grinding out albums full of the kind of songs I was aspiring to make. I got a job at Peach's Music and Video which gave me access to the music being released, sometimes before it even hit the shelves, and I studied it all. As hip-hop music flourished, so did my dreams and ultimately my confidence in the direction I was taking. My social circle was mostly made up of people who were involved in making music. We all constantly collaborated and leaned on one another for support and inspiration. But creative circles aside, I was still just a college student. Though my reputation continued to grow as an artist and a performer, I still had to go to class every semester and try to absorb just enough information to write my papers, take my midterms, and pass my finals. While school was in session, I made music, performed, and nurtured the friendships I had made within the various music scenes I was a part of. During the summers, I would go back to intern at Jive, and wound up bringing my new best friend Rue with me for companionship. I had met Rue in my freshman year, and though he didn't sing, rap, or play an instrument, he loved everything that he knew about music, making music, and being in the music industry. He was determined to find his place in the business, and there was nothing anyone could tell him that would convince him that he couldn't. As my senior year of college started, I was doing everything in my power to try to get closer to my dreams, but was coming up short. I would talk to Courtney C on the phone for hours so he could encourage me to keep going and take my mind off of what I considered my failures. We'd laugh hysterically at most of the local talent who was making a lot of bad music and compare our notes and strategies. It was a band aid. One day, though, he called me with an idea Yo, I'm gonna tell you what you need to do. You need to put out a single. That's what everybody's doing now. Put it on vinyl get it to all the DJs, and once it gets a lot of airplay, the labels will notice, and it'll help get you signed. You already got hot music, you just need to get the labels to notice you. I'm telling you. Courtney's advice seemed simple enough. He gave me a few phone numbers of places that I could call to get quotes on vinyl pressing. He promised that if I did what he said, he and the rest of his crew, the Butter team, would help to get my record out to all their DJ cohorts across the country. All I needed was the right song and a hot B-side. I began analyzing my recent catalog to see if I had any favorites, but there was nothing. I needed something new, something fresh. My favorite song at the time was Lost Ones by Lauren Hill, so I decided to make a song in that vein. The beat was simple and old school, but just catchy enough to be commercial. It allowed Lauren to showcase her lyrical skills on each of the three verses, but the melody and the simplicity of the chorus elevated it from just another hip-hop song to a hit. For production, I enlisted the help of my friend Mr. Dolo. If anyone knew the right old-school beat to sample, it was him. He was hip-hop in human form and a gifted MC and producer. I wanted a breakdance-inspired record, and Dolo was the person who could give me what I was envisioning. A day after telling him that I was making this record with the intent of releasing it as a single, I got a call telling me the beat was done. After hearing it over the phone, I became more excited about music than I had been in months. Sampled from an old record called Sparky D vs. The Playgirls, The Battle, the beat turned out to be exactly what I wanted. As I wrapped my 21 year old heart out on the verses, the chorus was a statement to the world that What's His Name was here and that I was the best. I wrote an old school hook to match the beat, which I felt was apropos. I knew undoubtedly that this was my single. Because I was teaching the world who I was and the rappers how they needed to sound, I went with the title, The Lesson. The last piece of the puzzle was to get a B-side. Back when singles were still a popular retail item, artists would put out a second song to accompany the single and give a taste of their forthcoming album. Staying true to my roots, I went back to Melvin to hear some beats for inspiration. Within two beats, I had found the one. Although he tried to convince me that it was made for some whack local who wasn't hard but tried to pretend that he was, he finally let up his fight and gave me his blessing. The song was called ASAP. That seemed fitting at the time because it expressed the sense of urgency I felt every day. I was nearing graduation, had no record deal, and was facing what I dreaded most, having to get a real job. I knew the B-side had to be at least as good as the single, so I took creating it very seriously. I was drawing lots of inspiration from Dolo at the time, so I decided to incorporate him on the chorus. I wrote it with his Craig Mack-esque voice in my mind, knowing that his commanding tone would sound perfect over Nitro's hyperactive and aggressive beat. Because I was going to release my first full-fledged single to the public, I wanted to do it right and record it in a real studio. With a referral from my friend Flawless, I set up a recording session at one in Greensboro near my school and invited all of my closest friends to be there. Recording in the professional environment brought excitement to the project and a vibe strong enough to allow me to finish ASAP on the floor of the studio shortly before recording it. Within a few weeks, I received my shipment of vinyl from the local pressing plant. Stamped with a cheap-looking, black-and-white label that Melvin had designed for me, the lesson, BWASAP, was pressed and ready to go. Though I had no actual plan, I turned to the Buddha team who had pledged their assistance. Almost instantaneously, I began receiving positive feedback on the record and airplay on Duke University Station, WXDU 88.7 FM, courtesy of the Buddha team's own Mike Nice. From there, it spread to WXCY 89.3 FM in Chapel Hill, WKNC 88.1 FM in Raleigh, and WNCU 90.7 FM in Durham. But something strange was happening. Everyone was choosing to play ASAP instead of The Lesson. My knee-jerk reaction was anger. These sons of bitches weren't following the plan. I even had a box of t-shirts made that said What's-His-Name, The Lesson, and now it was slowly becoming the B-side. But eventually, I snapped out of it. Having any song on the radio was better than no song at all, and it wasn't like ASAP was a dud of a record. I loved it, and I was happy to be flexible and follow the DJ's choice. Melvin, of course, was thrilled to be able to call me laughing to say, See what happens when you try to put out a song that I didn't produce? With the help of But Team cohort DJ Mad, who was servicing my record to a fair amount of DJs across the country via his record pool, my single was beginning to grow legs. Most of the airplay came courtesy of college and underground radio, which was much easier to break through than commercial radio. Because they don't rely on advertising dollars to keep them running, or pay their employees who get college credits at most, college stations allow their DJs to play whatever music they choose with few constraints. Commercial radio, by contrast, is much harder to penetrate because their goal is to play only what keeps their listeners tuned into the station just long enough to hear the commercials. By the way, That's why, on commercial radio stations, instead of hearing songs that you're going to love for the rest of your life, you mostly hear songs that sound like every other song. It's pretty sad when you think about how radio stations only exist to play commercials and that the music is just a filler between them. Most people assume it's the other way around. I guess that's why they say that ignorance is bliss and why choosing what songs play on commercial radio is referred to as programming. The success of ASAP proved that I could make songs people liked even songs some might call hits. Next, my mission was to infiltrate commercial radio so ASAP could reach its full potential. It seemed like a daunting task, but I thought I had earned just enough respect from commercial radio DJs in the area for there to be a chance. Sure enough, I was right. My friends Capital J and J Flex helped to make ASAP a staple on Friday and Saturday night mix shows where they were given a little bit more leeway to deviate from the regular playlist. DJ Polo followed suit and began playing the record religiously during his 5pm mix show slot. The buzz was building and it fueled me. I received an invitation to Polo's Obia recording studio the following week where he told me that Mike Nice had given him the record and that he loved it. Polo went on to tell me that he had entered me in a contest to open up 102 Super Jam concert. All I had to do was get the most votes, and with the mix show airplay that I was already receiving, he felt I should be a shoe-in for the win. This meant that the worst case scenario would be that the five finalists, even if they didn't win, would still receive airplay on 102. I was never into the idea of notoriety via a contest, but I figured that it couldn't hurt my reputation. Super Jam typically drew in roughly 20,000 people and would be an amazing opportunity to perform at Greensboro Coliseum. How could I not be excited? After playing 10 or 20 contest entries on the radio over the next week or so, ASAP was a clear finalist. For the next three weeks, 102 would pepper our five songs into the rotation. Hearing my song on the radio was mind-blowing, but nothing compared to hearing the deep voice radio guy saying, And now, what's his name? I still smile when I think about it. As the contest continued, the five finalists would get requests from the listeners, and the more requests you got, the more your song got played. Fortunately for me, people seemed to dig ASAP, which meant that I would get anywhere from three to eight spins throughout the day. It was far more than any of the other groups were getting, so I assumed that I had the victory in the bag. Then the station threw a monkey wrench into the contest. To help determine the winner, the five finalists would have to perform at the fair that took place in the Greensboro Coliseum parking lot the weekend before Super Jam. I was annoyed at the extra step, yet confident I would show and prove. I was one of two frontrunners along with a group from Chapel Hill called Sankofa. Where I was a traditional MC with a DJ, they were a full-fledged band with a rapper similar to The Roots. The band was talented, but to me, the rapper was, eh, and I figured their brand of hip-hop was a little too abstract for the Greensboro, North Carolina radio crowd, who relied on commercial radio to tell them what to like. With the arrogance reminiscent of a young Allen Iverson, I decided that I didn't need to practice. We're talking about practice, man. I discussed what I wanted to do with Bro Rab and knew he'd deliver. I also invited my crew, Sim Swells, Dolo, Rue, and Jay Mundine to accompany me on stage and play Entourage to my Vinny Chase. That Saturday night came quickly and I was ready for war. We all came dressed in our best rapper costumes and even brought what's-his-name t-shirts to throw out to the crowd like real professionals. I thought that if I just did the song that people already liked and appeared comfortable and established that there would be no chance I wouldn't win. My performance started and the crowd of a few hundred started rocking along with the music. I had instructed my crew to go up first so I could come from behind when my verse started. I thought it would look cool and be a bit of a reveal for everyone who had been hearing my song without being able to connect a face to it. And with a moniker like What's-His-Name, I knew it would only add to the suspense. What I hadn't anticipated was that the stage would be too small for me and my posse to coexist while allowing me to remain the focal point of the performance. It was a fiasco. The staging fostered a lackluster performance which probably did nothing more than confuse the crowd as to who the actual rapper was. We all sort of danced around like a miniature Wu-Tang Clan on a tiny stage, and many times I wasn't even in the front. I knew it was bad and disorganized, although the dap I received from one 11-year-old did make me feel like I looked pretty cool. Next up was Sankofa and their five-piece band. Being of the hip-hop mentality, I never for a second considered that a band would ever be able to outdo me at the game that I felt I had mastered. That is until the second their performance began. It came down to this. Music from turntables cannot compete with live instrumentation. Unlike the electronic stylings from Acts Like Mine, Sankofa's music was meant to be performed live. Okay, I was a better rapper than theirs was, but the immediacy and raw energy of their performance demolished mine. It also didn't hurt that Sankofa had brought a fair amount of their diehard fans with them to the concert. It was no longer a contest. When it came down to them or me in the end, their crew's screams and cheering overpowered the random crowd who, even if they liked the song, had little particular affinity or connection to me. I knew it before it happened. That night, Sankofa would be crowned the champion and would have the pleasure of opening up the biggest rap show of the year while introducing their music to 20,000 people. I never lost confidence, but I was embarrassed, especially when Boogie D, one of the station's biggest jocks, told me that the consensus among the 102 Jam staff was that my performance was pretty terrible. Dude, your performance sucked, he said candidly. I figured that Sankofa would be discovered, and I'd just be a memory, until I wasn't anymore. I also knew it would be the end of the ASAP radio reign, and the last time I'd ever hear the radio guy say my name. It turned out that being the winner didn't protect Sankofa from the vagaries of the music industry, fandom, and contests like these. I later heard they were booed off the stage at Super Jam. The 20,000 paying fans didn't know who Sankofa was and was impatient to see their favorite artist perform. The news shouldn't have made me happy, but it was a relief to feel that, if nothing else, I avoided the treatment. Deep in my heart, I believed I would have rocked the crowd but could only make assumptions based on facts. And the facts were, as much of an honor as it seemed to be, no one in Greensboro Coliseum wanted to hear an unknown opening act. The loss still stung, but I gained a small piece of petty happiness from the news that the winners had still lost. I came to terms with the fact that ASAP had had its run, so I could continue with my journey to hip-hop greatness. But then my friend Chris called me with some news about that stubborn track. Yo, are you listening to 102 right now? He buzzed. No, why? I replied. Because ASAP is number five on the High Five at Nine. Get out of here, man. They stopped playing ASAP last week after the contest was over. No, I'm telling you, it's on the radio right now, Chris yelled. I turned the radio on just in time to hear the DJ say, that was number five ASAP by What's-His-Name out of Durham. Could this be? I thought. Are people still asking for this song? Does the program director at 102 still want to play it? I figured this had to be a one-time thing, but I couldn't have been more wrong. 102 would play ASAP in semi-regular rotation during the day, as well as in their 9 o'clock countdown. Every night I'd listen to see if I would gotten any lower, and just after a few days of being number five, I got to number four. After a week of four, I got to three. After I hit three, I hit two, and then one night, everything changed. Number three tonight, we have R. Kelly featuring Nas with Did You Ever Think? Okay, I thought, I guess I'm number two again. Just then I heard the radio guy. Number two. But it wasn't my song. It was Anywhere by 112. Back to the familiar mixture of feelings. Disappointed but happy that I had a good run. That was the subdued pep talk I gave myself during the commercials. Then, we have a new number one song tonight. Straight from Durham, this is What's-His-Name with ASAP. What? I screamed at the top of my lungs. I had reached number one on the 102 Jams countdown. I'd beat out R. Kelly, Nas, and 112, and my 22 year old local college self had made a song that people liked enough to vote it to number one. Talking to myself about having a good run was over. Now I knew that I had what it took and that I was going to make it. ASAP.